Well, we inadvertently slipped our way into a series a few weeks ago on seeing. It was not by accident that we began 2020 with a series on seeing. Um, We talked about seeing beyond the grasshopper mentality. We talked about seeing the Lord. Um, We talked about seeing the real Jesus. Uh, I might have missed one. But today we're going to talk about seeing the mission with focus. This will be the final installment of this uh, unintentional series. Uh, But as I was preparing, actually before I was preparing, uh, I just got a a letter in from, uh, some of you know that I'm friends with Dick Leggett, who's the president of Derek Prince Ministries. And there was just one line in his letter that just drew me to this topic and to this passage. And by the way, in a few minutes, we're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, if you want to get ahead of the game. Uh, But to see our mission with focus, that's, that's what we're talking about today. And that's because the enemy of our souls would seek to disrupt or distract our focus from the mission at hand. You might have already picked up uh, if you've been here any amount of time, that we we are attempting to be a mission-minded congregation. And don't hear that as missions, although we obviously involved in missions. But that our mindset is one of mission. And that's every day, and that's where we live, mission. And the enemy would love to distract us or disrupt you from what God has you doing. You say, well, he's, he wouldn't be bothered with me. Yes, he would. Well, I'll tell you who he's not bothered with. Somebody said, if the devil's not bothering you, or if you hadn't run into him lately, y'all must be going in the same direction. <laughs> if our vision is clouded by outside forces or ideas, we will surely falter in our mission. Now, this is not about going to heaven. This is not about heaven or hell. That's not what we're talking about today. Heaven and hell are both real. And getting getting saved by the blood of Jesus will get you out of one and into the other one. This is about, while we're still here, being effective in the mission that he's given you and given me. I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice desires to, to walk and to fulfill the mission that God has put Put you into. The, Nehemiah offers us a great example of assuming a mission, being opposed by his enemies, and his response to the ridicule and the attempt at confusion. We're not going to cover the whole book of Nehemiah. I would recommend you read the book. I think it's 13 chapters, if I'm not mistaken, maybe, maybe 14. Uh, you say, you don't know? No, I don't know. I could find out real quick, but it doesn't really matter. But Nehemiah tells the story of the, if you go back far enough, you you see the children of Israel judged by God because they uh, did not give the land its proper rest. I don't want to get too complicated, but they were, every seven years, they were supposed to give the land rest. They did not. The land accumulated 70 years worth of rest. And God said to the children of Israel, you would not do what I asked you to do, what I told you to do, so I'm going to give 
my land, the rest, I'm going to put you in captivity. Guess how long? Seventy years in the Babylonian captivity. And not, all, not everyone went. Most did. Nehemiah finds himself the cupbearer for the king. Um, not the king of Israel, but anyway, the king. And he gets this report, and we'll get to that in a moment, about Jerusalem and the shape that it's in. Uh, so let's just read a few verses. Uh, uh, Nehemiah 2 and verse 17. Now, this is what he's done. You can stand while we read the scripture. What he's doing here is he's toured the city. He's gotten permission from the king to go and rebuild the walls. He's toured the city to see what the damage looks like. He hasn't told anyone what he's up to, but now he's about to tell a group of people. If you'll look at uh, verse 16, it says he was ta- he uh, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials. He's beginning to talk to these folks. And verse 17, he says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now skip over to chapter uh, 4. I'll tell you what, let's just continue on. But when Sanballat and Horonite, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab, I wonder if he's kin to Ahab the Arab, anyway, that's a... Heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And then chapter 4, verse 1, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers, Uh, And of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Yeah. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. This is obviously Nehemiah praying. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Wow, we need that today. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Amen. You can be seated. There's so much you could read here, but we're just going to... Skip that. We're going to talk about the mission. By the way, if you're holding a Bible, which is rare these days, um, you want to stay stay there because we're going to, I'm going to take you to several verses, not not the book, but several verses in Nehemiah. If you're holding a device, then we get ready to tap. 
the first three verses of Nehemiah say the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. I don't know if that's what month that is. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And thus began his his uh, endeavor. And he goes before the king. King gives him the letter, so go do it. And so his, his goal is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you noted that when he met with these folks and he said to them, we're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because we have suffered derision long enough by the enemy, by the way. We've suffered this. We're going to rebuild the walls. And so the, the collective of people that he was talking to and was joined with, it says, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And so they began to build and to build the wall and restore the wall. And this mission that Nehemiah takes upon himself and all those with him, this mission, first of all, led to almost 50,000 exiles returning to Jerusalem. So we have a positive result uh, here. Um, and it also led to the returning of the reading of the law. It was a, it was the law that the, the scriptures would be read publicly at least every seven years. Uh, I, I don't know if that means the whole scriptures, which was then was obviously didn't have what we have today. But there, but because of the captivity and because of the sin of the people of Israel, this had not occurred. And so now they rebuild Jerusalem. They restore what needs to be restored. And then we're just going to skip through some verses. You'll see them on the screen uh, that, that tell us what's happened. Uh, Nehemiah 8.1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. It has nothing to do with Richard Nixon. And... <laughs> And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Watch this. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Look at verse 5. And, and Ezra opened the book. Now, by the way, this is why we stand. It's not a rule. It's not a law. But this is why we stand when we read the scripture. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, like up on a rostrum. And as he opened it, all the people stood, because they were famished. Of the word. They were thirsty. Of the word. And in and, and verse 8. They read from the book. From the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense. So that the people understood the reading. They returned to the scriptures. And then the other thing that happened was. They renewed their covenant. Look at over 938. It renewed the covenant as a people. Again this is destitute to renewing the covenant. Uh, 938, uh, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests, 
And then in 1028, uh, it says, if I can find it, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So this is the, I wanted just to paint the picture. This was the mission he undertook, and this was the result of his mission. Anytime you have a mission, there's a result. You may not see the result. You may not understand what God's doing, but there's always a result. If God has you doing something, there's always a result. Everybody say that together. There's always a result. Because God is a God of results. So they faced the opposition of the enemy. Now we read this because we don't face opposition, but we want to know what it looks like. Yeah, right. <laughs> these, these pagan leaders showed up. I don't quite totally understand, and maybe I should study history a little more, what, why they were so vehemently objected or had such an objection to the wall being rebuilt. I'm sure it had something to do with power and an agenda. But they showed up, the governor of Samaria, uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, governor of Samaria is Sanballat, and then Geshem the Arab, they showed up to to just cause problems and say, hey, you can't do that. Why would you do that? And, and began to exert their opposition. But I love what Nehemiah told them. And this is what we tell our enemy when he comes trying to uh, uh, find a place in our territory. They said to them, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Can I tell you that your enemy has no portion, no right, no claim in your Jerusalem? The only place the enemy has in our world is where we erroneously give it to it. Yes, yes. Paul said, he wrote to the Ephesians, give the devil no opportunity or no, some versions say no place, which indicates we have the ability to not give him a place. Right. And so Nehemiah said, you don't have any, you, you have nothing to do with this. You might as well go on about your business because this doesn't concern you at all. The enemy, if you are, if you are, uh, operating in your mission, oh, I want to come back to that. If you're operating in your mission, you can count on the enemy trying to frustrate what you're doing. I'm not talking about always demonic activity. Sometimes that's easier to recognize. They plotted in verse, chapter four, verse eight, they plotted to cause confusion. What if the enemy could cause confusion to you and to me in the midst of our trying to obey God? Let me tell you something. The word there in the Hebrew for confusion is not just a word that means not, you know, being confused, not understanding what's going on. It's really a word uh, that means, some versions actually translate it disturbance. It's a word that means error or perversion or mistake. So more than just not quite understanding everything, the enemy would like to take 
your efforts and turn them in such a way that they become a mistake. I don't want to get too deep into this, but how many of you know that the news uh, often is filled with people who have begun a good race, but they found themselves in a place of perversion or error because the enemy caused confusion. And his, his goal is to hinder or stop your mission, not just to... He's not just trying to give us a hard time. He's not just trying to make us miserable. He's trying to hinder or stop whatever it is God has called and gifted you to do. He said, well, he hasn't called me and gifted me to do anything. I beg to differ. He has. Every person who's breathing, and I assume most of you are breathing, has a mission. And what we want to have, and Nehemiah had, was a clear focus on this mission. Now, if you, if you have a device or your book handy, six, chapter six, verse one, I want you to see what he answered. Uh, when the, these people, they weren't going to give up. Chapter six, verse one, now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, Although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, let's have coffee. Come, let us meet together. And I'm not going to try to pronounce that. In the plain of Ono. I know Ono was married to John Lennon. No, that's Yoko Ono. Maybe I should have tried to pronounce the other word. But, uh, but they intended to do me harm. How many of you know it's a misnomer to think the Holy Spirit has only been active in our lives since Jesus? You don't have to study the Old Testament very long before you find the activity and the working of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. If I had time, I could show it to you. How else could he know they intended to do him harm? Verse 3, I love this. I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they did this four times. And each time he said to them, I'm doing a great work. Why would I, why would I leave what I'm doing to go be bothered with you? Why would I leave the great work? Good Lord. How many know if the devil can get you doing religious activities that have nothing to do with your mission, he wins? Mm. Nehemiah had singleness of eye. He was not shaken. He was never deterred. He was never distracted. And he said, I got a work to do. I got something to do and you're not going to, you're not going to distract me from that. You're not going to take me away from that. You're not going to cause me to see something else. I've got a great work. Why in the world would I leave this work and go drink Starbucks with you? <laughs> see, pay attention to the fact that Nehemiah in this whole story, there's no personal benefit. 
There's no personal benefit to him. He is on mission for the Lord. His mission is to rebuild the walls. By the way, let me add this in. Sometimes we think when we hear the word mission, well, that's kind of carnal, rebuilding walls. Mm. How many of you understand if your if your gospel doesn't apply where you live, you got the wrong gospel. Amen. You've heard the old saying, heavenly minded and no earthly good. I submit to you that those people who are no earthly good aren't even heavenly minded. <laughs> Being religious is not necessarily heavenly minded. I told somebody recently, I'd rather deal with a demon-possessed person than a religious person. It's easier. Well, it is the same thing sometimes. Thank you, John. Lord, don't let me get off on that. Mission for the Lord. Your mission it can be anything. It don't have to be quote unquote some spiritual, super spiritual thing. I mean, if if, you, if if you're a dentist, I don't know anybody here's a dentist. Be the best dentist you can be. If you're a songwriter, write the best songs you can write. If you're a carpenter, build the best houses you can build. If you're an electrician, don't get shocked. <laughs> but do the best you can do. That's mission. Work, walk worthy of the vocation to which you were called. And so he shows us how to avoid these distractions, avoiding distractions. I don't know where I got this statement. I tried to find, it could have come from me. I don't know. But the quality of life and effectiveness of our mission will be determined by where our focus and direction lies. And distractions diminish both as we turn our attention away from that which is primary. And so what we're trying to do today is focus on what God has for us to stay in focus, not allow the enemy to turn our head to one side or the other so that he can cause us to maybe fall into error or a mistake. How many of you understand it doesn't take a big mistake? If you get one degree off, by the time you get to where the target is, you're a lot off. Sometimes, I can't spend a lot of time here, but you know the story of Martha and Mary. Martha's washing the dishes and cooking, and Mary's sitting on the door, on the steps on the front porch listening to Jesus, and she's all upset. And the Bible says, but Martha was distracted. I don't have a slide for this, so you just have to believe, trust me. Or either look it up. Martha was distracted, watch this, with serving Some people get upset at this passage and it's hard to understand like Jesus is endorsing laziness. He's not. Martha was distracted with much serving, but the, she complained to Jesus. She said, tell her to get out, get up here and help me with these dishes. Jesus said, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. You know what the word anxious there in the, in the Greek language means? Confusion. Confusion. To be confused. He says, Mary, he goes on to say, Mary 
has chosen that which is primary. Now here, uh, James Wallace uh, in his commentary, Feasting on the Word, said, Jesus is not going after busy Martha, but worried and distracted Martha. Hear that. He's not going after busy Martha because diligence is a godly character. But he's going after a Martha who is distracted from what she's supposed to be doing. And she's allowed the enemy to cause her to be distracted with serving. I want to just give us three things that can cause us distraction. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. We'll get you out of here at least by 1 or one thirty. Probably in the Western world, the thing that distracts most of us is money and riches. Let me hasten to add here. This is not speaking to people making a profit in their business. This is not speaking to the fact that God will prosper you in your vocation. This is not speaking to that at all. I believe profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, is not a bad word. If you have a business, make profit. As a matter of fact, the parable of the talents tells that pretty clearly. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being distracted by money and riches. And in, in our Western world, go ahead. You know good and well that we deal with that. I'm saying that we should not define our relationship with God by the physical or the material. I've heard too many preachers who say, if God, if you're really walking with God, you have this much in your bank account. Not so. Not so. I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not endorsing poverty. The proverb says pretty clearly, Lord, don't get, don't let me be rich and don't let me be poor. Somewhere in between work just fine. But we, we too often define our relationship with God by the amount in our checkbook. We can't do that. Or by the possessions we have. You know, somebody said, well, you got a nice car. Well, God bless me. Well, what about the person that didn't get a nice car? Are you saying God didn't bless them? Mm. The question is, does riches and the acquiring of it rule our lives? That's the question. Not whether we're making a profit or not whether we maybe are better off than the person next door. But do do we do does it rule our lives? There, here's our indications that we're susceptible to being distracted by the love of money. You know the Bible says love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. Somebody said the lack of money is the root of all evil. Not so. By the way, I think this came from Alistair Begg. Every waking moment is spent thinking about money and how to get more of it. This is if you, if you have an inordinate love of money that governs your life. Is you have every waking moment you're spent thinking about money and how you can get more of it. Or you get jealous, watch this, at the financial blessing of another. Someone gets a new job, more they're making a lot of good money, and you go. Instead of, thank God, rejoice. Instead of that, it's, well, what to God, are you mad at me? What about me? I don't like what about me disease. I get it. Everybody gets it. But this what about me stuff, that's not God. Or you define success in terms of what you have. 
rather than what and who you are in Christ. Or when you close your eyes to the genuine needs of others. Levite, priest, good Samaritan. When you're paralyzed by the fear of losing all your money. I've known people like that. They were very wealthy. And they couldn't enjoy what God had put into their bank account. Because they were afraid of losing it all. You know the best way to get over that? Give it away. Anytime you give away a dollar, you're saying to that dollar, you don't rule me. You don't govern me. When God receives your leftovers rather than your first fruits, oh, oh me. The Bible says the rich young ruler was distracted by his possessions. Jesus said, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And the, and the Bible says that he went away sad. Or he says he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. Why? Because he was distracted by what he owned. You've heard me say hundreds of times. I am firmly convinced. Had he that day done what Jesus asked him to do, and that is to sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor. And I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that any, all of us should have to do that. You may have to. One time I built my wife, I spent several weeks building my wife a new computer. You say, you know how to do that? Well, I used to. <laughs> There's really not as much to that as you think. Anyway, I put, bought a case, bought everything you needed, put it all together, got it set up for, I had a computer, now she had a computer, and then we went to church and the Lord spoke to her and said, give your computer to that girl over there. And I'm going, wait a minute. All that time and money I put into that thing. And it wasn't that the computer owned her, she just had to obey God. But when you give something away, you can guarantee it doesn't own you. Okay. The other thing is being distracted by worry and anxiety. Now, we don't have any problem with this, but just, just in case you run across this problem at some point, worry and anxiety. For several years, a woman had been having trouble getting to sleep at night because she feared burglars. She worried every night that someone was going to break into their home. One night, her husband heard a noise in the house, so he went downstairs to investigate. When he got there, he found a burglar. Good evening, said the man of the house. I'm pleased to see you. Come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been waiting 10 years to meet you. (laughs) Worry. Anxiety. Anxiety is a word... It really means to divide into separate parts, to be split into factions. You're betwixt and between. You just go in two different ways, and you just can't rest. Anxiety. Worry. It's when our eye, we're talking about focus, it's when our eye is muddled with concerns that are rooted in a lack of trust. You don't don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about because I've lived it. You 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 see up an issue and because your eyes are muddled, you don't you don't have the trust that you should have. And some, every now and then I have to remind myself I, I'm I got to trust God because I don't have anybody else I can trust. 
If I can't trust him, then so be it. But I'm going to trust him regardless. And I'm pretty sure it's going to work out pretty good. I've been doing this for... Boy, you get a little older, the math gets difficult. (laughs) 48 years. I've been preaching the gospel for 46 years. One thing I've learned in that time is when you trust God, he comes through. Maybe not the way. Anyway, worry. (laughs) Worry is fear's extravagance. I don't, this is anyway. It extracts interest on trouble before it comes due. It constantly drains the energy God gives us to face daily problems and to fulfill our many responsibilities. It is therefore therefore a sinful waste. A woman who had lived long enough to have learned some important truths about life remarked, I've had a lot of trouble, most of it, which never happened. She had worried about many things that had never occurred and had come to see the total futility of her anxieties. Brother Charles Simpson's dad, Brother Vernon Simpson, said it this way. I've quoted him many times. Anxiety is a mild form of atheism. Now, he didn't say you're an atheist if you have anxiety. What he meant by that is to the degree that we're governed and distracted by anxiety is to that same degree that we don't really trust God. That's, right. that's not a wagging the finger condemnation. That's just, that's just understanding that if we truly, truly trust God, we will not be governed by anxiety. We will not be governed by worry. Now we're going, you know, you're going to have concerns and there are legitimate concerns, but anxiety and worrying it just means we don't really trust God enough. And then there's the distraction of weariness. We, sometimes we get to doing stuff for God and we, and we start trying to be obedient. And we're somewhere along the way, we have become like Martha. We're just serving for the sake of serving. We're not serving to be obedient. And we're not sitting at the feet of Jesus to give us the impetus we, we need to serve. Let's, let's do all this religious stuff. Let's spit out all these religious platitudes at people. Let's quote Bible verses till you can't see straight. Now, you you know I believe in Bible verses. You had not been around here very long if you don't believe that. Oh, Lord, I don't want to say it. Sometimes you take Bible verses and you exercise them like witchcraft. Hmm. When you reach in here and pull out a verse and you start waving it around and you start trying to use it to your benefit, that's witchcraft. Because what you've done is you've disconnected that Bible verse from the God of the Bible. You just, you just developed some tool and it happens to be in print. Lord, why'd you let me get into that? You can, you get weary. Uh, Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, everybody say due season. That means it will happen. In due season, we will reap. Do not give up. And we find ourselves 
doing what God said, doing what God said, doing what God said, and we say, well, well that's never going to happen. Abraham, God said, you're going to have a, you're going to have a son. He's going to be your heir. Hallelujah. But when? I'm, I'm kind of old, Lord, when? And at Sarah's suggestion, of course, Abraham has a meeting with uh, Hagar and Ishmael as a result because he grew weary in doing good. In other words, he didn't wait for God to fulfill what he said. Don't, don't let weariness distract you from the mission. We'll finish up by talking about making a strategy. And this is all in Nehemiah too. Not Nehemiah also. First one is God strengthened our hands. And you see the verse 6 and 9. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But the next statement he says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Sometimes we miss the, the simplest part of this whole thing, and that is, God, strengthen my hands. If we're going to put our hand to something, and he's talking about the appendages that he would use to do the work, in this case, physically, whatever it is, say to God, strengthen my hand. Strengthen my proverbial hands. Strengthen whatever I need to do, whatever it is, the mission you have for me, whatever that is, strengthen that area of my life. We need God's strength and we need God's power to accomplish God's mission. Hebrews says, fix your gaze upon Jesus, the author and the consummator and the finisher of our faith. And that's how we can get the mission accomplished. So say, God, strengthen my hands. But then the next thing is set a guard. I want to give you a great verse here. I've already given it to you. I'm going to give it to you again if I can find it. Oh, yeah, verse 4 9. Watch this. And we prayed to our God, and everybody say, and. and. We set up a guard as a protection against them day and night. You're not very spiritual if you got set up a guard. You prayed. You prayed to God. Why would you need to set up a guard? Some of you just got free. Because you one or the other, you think, well, I'm just going to pray. Bless God. And then somebody else said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I'm just going to set up a guard. Would not pray. Nehemiah said, we prayed. We prayed to God. And then we went and set up a guard. So what does that mean? I don't know, but I'll tell you. Well, anyway, <laughs> you, you and I have a choice. In whether or not we set up a guard. Amen. God's not going to set up your guard. He will guard you. But he's not going to set up a guard in your life. No less than seven times in the New Testament, the Bible says, be on guard against greed, drunkenness, worries of this life, persecution, 
a wayward brother or sister. And then in 2 Peter 3.17, he writes, Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Pray and set the guard. Guard your heart. Guard your life. Set a guard. And, and don't let the enemy distract you from that. Set that. Set the guard. And that's what, as they were building that wall, they set a guard. Jesus said, but then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. This is a great, I don't know, do y'all like the Bible? I hope y'all like the Bible. Jesus said, this is great. I'll read it. But for not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. Even though you may have a wealth of abundance, that's not your life. Your life doesn't consist. I've said that earlier, but I love it. Jesus says it better than I do. And another thing that we see in this story is that they they looked for the strength and the support from fellow followers. 419 says, I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we separated on the wall far from one another. How many of you realize that in your mission that you're not, you're not always in this room? Y'all smart. My mission is not always in this room. We're far from one another. Watch what he says next. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. What does that mean? It means that when you are far from one another and the enemy is coming in your world to distract you and to, to confuse you and to, to, to disrupt what you're trying to do, grab up your trumpet and sound the, sound the alarm. What does that mean? Hey, can you come over to, can we meet? Would you pray for me? I'm, I'm feeling this. Can, can we meet the, can you, can, can I rely on your strength today? That's what he was saying. He said, when you have a problem at your wall, sound the trumpet and all your brothers will come to where you are and support you. Don't forget that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who will stand with you. And they're going to have their weak moments when they're going to call you. Hey, can you, can we talk? Can we pray? I guarantee you that God's going to fix your life in such a way that you're going to need somebody. Because they already has. We're instructed to bear one another's burdens. We're instructed to rally to others. To seek a strengthening hand or a word. So what I'm doing today is I'm calling on you and I'm calling on me and anybody under the sound of my voice to follow Nehemiah's example of resisting the enemy's overtures and continue with their hands to the plow. Now you identify what it is that God has you to do. By the way. Somebody said, well, you're always talking about the plow. Well, I was raised in the south. Watch this verse. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
So what we see an image there, putting our hand to the plow and plowing the field, plowing rows. I never did that, by the way. Not with an animal. I did it with tractors. But anyway, plowing the field and dropping seed into the rows as we plow. And whatever it is that God has gifted and called you to do and is, has assigned you his mission, that's your plow. De- never denigrate the value of your mission. I wish I could be like, no, be like who you are. Be who God has made you and gifted you and breathed into you and put your hands on the plow. And when the enemy comes along and says, hey, why don't we go over here and do this? Why don't you could get rich if you just did this? What we say to the enemy is, I'm doing a great work. Why would I stop? Why would I stop just to entertain you? See, with focus. And then watch God do what God does. Can you say amen again? Stand with me.